Well, good morning. Uh, I'm not Brother Dwayne, nor am I 59 years old. <clears throat> I got to know your pastor when I was three or four years old, and uh, he was in his 40s or so. And I am so grateful to be here. I need to be careful. He'll never invite me back. Um, I have known your pastor a long, long time. I'm from Anna, Illinois. Anybody know where Anna is? Uh, my mom and dad, all, all of my dad's family's from Anna. Dad had 16 brothers and sisters. Most of them never made it out of the county uh, for legal purposes. But um, <laughs> I'm from Anna. <clears throat> when I was in the first grade, my dad became the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Golconda, Illinois. Anybody know where Golconda is? So sorry, I went to Pope County for many years and uh, didn't learn much, but uh, that's where I was from, and I grew up down there, and so Friday nights we would go to Paducah or Harrisburg to buy groceries and get gas, because we didn't have a lot of that in Golconda when I grew up. So that's where I'm from. My name's Tim Sadler. I now have the privilege of serving you at the Illinois Baptist State Association as the Director of Evangelism, Discipleship. Uh, Baptist Collegiate Ministry, Student Ministry, and Men's Ministry, and so in my spare time, that's, uh, that's what I do uh, there at IBSA. I'm so grateful to be here at Dorsville. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege for me to be here. Just a little bit more. Anybody else know where Cyprus is? Anybody know where Cyprus is? I, when I graduated uh, from high school, I went to college in Tennessee and seminary in Texas and, and uh, the first time, and then... I couldn't find a good woman, and so I came back to Illinois, and I found one in Cyprus. I know that's hard to believe, but there was a good woman there, and she and I, uh, we have four children together, and that's why I'm on the road a whole lot. It's because our house is loud. Uh, we have, uh, this week, we celebrated our oldest 11-year-old, I mean, he's, he's more than a decade now, um, and so we got 11 and then we tried for another boy, and we got a girl, she's nine, and then we had the four-year seminary gap, and then we had another girl trying to have a boy, and then we tried to have another boy, and we had a girl. So I have a son and three daughters, and uh, when my wife was pregnant with our fourth one, uh, she was getting ready to go in and have the ultrasound to figure out what it was, and is it a boy, is it a girl? And she asked me, I remember vividly, she said, what do you think it is? And I responded, I think it's the caboose. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's the last. <laughs> How many of you parents know exactly what I mean? Amen. <laughs> I come this morning with a very, very heavy heart. Three years ago, I had the privilege to come back here to my home state and to work with churches to help us impact our communities with the gospel. In Illinois right now, three out of every four people you meet do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Three-fourths of our state, if they were to die today, would be separated from God for all of eternity. It's about 8 million people that would spend eternity in hell apart from God. Worse than that, 
There was a survey done of Southern Baptist pastors. you got to know I love Southern Baptist pastors. My dad's been a Southern Baptist pastor as long as I've been alive. I was a Southern Baptist pastor for about 17 years. I love Southern Baptist pastors. There was a survey done, and they asked the pastors this question. Have you shared the gospel outside the pulpit in the last six months? 54% of pastors said no. They had not told anyone about Jesus outside of the pulpit in the last six months. One study that was done said of believers that just, just believers not paid, you know, preacher types, but believers. Those who make up the body of Christ. A survey was done across America many denominations, and they ask this question. Do you ever intend to share the gospel? Nine out of ten believers who sit in church pews every Sunday morning said no. Ninety percent of people who sit in church pews, just like we're sitting in this morning, ninety percent of believers in America said that they do not intend to share the gospel. Now, for those of you who are sitting there saying, you know what, I just don't believe that. Well, that's okay. Let me tell you that the survey was done before that without the word intend. We simply asked the question, have you ever? And the answer came back, 90% of believers said, I've never shared my faith. So we recommissioned the survey. And we asked the question, do you intend to share your faith? And 90% of believers said, no, I do not intend to share my faith. Dennis Peathers, good friend, British evangelist who wrote More to Life, he believes with all that he's done and studied, he believes that right now in America, three out of 100 believers are actually sharing their faith. That would mean that 97% of us are not doing so. And he believes that out of those three that are actually sharing their faith, only one is doing with any kind of consistency. And so, I think we just need to ask the question, do we even care? Do we care that the little boy that lives across the street, whose mom and dad never tells him about Jesus Christ, never tells him that Christ died for his sins, and that there is a place called heaven that he can go to, he's never hurt. And the question is, do we care? Do we care about the man who lives next door whose wife left him and he's all by himself? Do we care that he needs the hope that Christ offers? Do we even care? Do we care that our children are growing up in homes without daily Bible study and without family prayer time? Do we even care? I want to take your attention this morning to Luke chapter 15. one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I call them the parables of joy. And the one we're going to look at this morning, just briefly, is the lost coin. Your pastor is gracious. He said that I could have about an hour and 15 minutes, but more than that is just too much. I'm kidding. Luke chapter 15, you know this. The first parable, parable of the lost, say it. She, thank you. Second parable we're going to deal with is only three verses long. Aren't you excited when the preacher's only going to preach three verses? Amen. And then the last parable is the parable of the lost sons. 
It is not the parable of the lost son. It is, in fact, the parable of the lost sons. The first son is lost in his rebelliousness. The second son is lost in his self-righteousness. The story ends with the elder brother who claims to have been perfect all of his life, estranged from his father. The story begins in verses 1 and 2 with Jesus addressing the situation. As a matter of fact, he tells all three of these stories because of the heart that he sees in the religious people of his day. And I don't know about you, but we got a lot of religious folks that live around us. Amen? Not many of them are saved, but they're religious. Amen. Verse 1, I'll amen myself if you don't amen me. Verse 1, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now just briefly, just as background before we really begin this morning, I want you to notice a couple of things. The Bible says that the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. In other words, they were attracted to his message. Jesus never condoned sin. He always preached the holiness of God. As a matter of fact, he not only preached it, he lived the holiness of God. But sinners were attracted to him. But watch, there was another group that was there, and they were the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, they loved the law. And what they didn't like was this teacher of the law gathering sinners around him. Now, I just have to make just a real broad stroke brush this morning. Isn't it amazing to you that we have churches all over America... And just like the scribes and Pharisees, they are disgusted by broken, lost people. But Jesus' ministry was attractive to broke, attractive to broken, lost people. And so, I don't know about you, but it's like we've kind of we've kind of sit down in the chair of the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you don't look like me and act like me and smell like me and make what I make and live in the kind of house I live in and dress like I dress, then our church just doesn't have time for you. I don't know about you, but I I just see that as contradictory to the life and the message of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if we're going to embrace Christ as our Savior, we need to embrace Christ's methodology and loving, broken, lost, hurting people. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin... Does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Number one, this morning, if you'd like to take notes, number one, I want you to see the coin was very precious. The coin was very precious. In verse 8, Jesus refers to it as one coin. And in verse 9, he refers to it with the article, the peace. One coin and the peace. Jesus is actually referring to a tin drachma garland. He's talking about these tin silver coins. What's he talking about? Well, the verse actually reveals to us exactly what Jesus is referring to. A married Jewish woman would have received a ten drachma garland that she could wear as a headpiece. It would have had great significance in her life. Incredible significance in her life because of when she received it, because of what it stood for, and because of who she received it from. So losing this would have been a tremendous loss in her life. 
Really, though, as far as the monetary value, it's a very small value. One single drachma is worth only about a quarter of a Jewish shekel. So ten of these altogether would only be worth about two dollars. So we're not talking about an exorbitant amount of money. One of these would have been worth about a day laborer's wage. So if a day laborer went out and he worked all day long, one of these drachma is probably what he would have made. It's not a lot of money. But to this woman, it mattered. Years ago, when my wife and I started dating, she chased, she pursued me relentlessly uh, for my looks and my money. And uh, I finally gave in and decided I wanted to make this woman my wife. That's not exactly how the story goes, but she's not here this morning, so I'm telling it like I hear it in my mind. All those voices. Anyhow, I remember when I wanted to propose, and so I went to the jewelry store. How many of you guys have ever done that? You just walk in there and scared to death, and you know this is about to cost a lot of money, and you don't know... I'm going to blow it if I pick out the wrong ring. And so I went in there and I picked it out. And I, back then I was pastoring a real, real, real small church. And they didn't pay a lot of money. And I, so I didn't make a lot of money. And so I, I bought the largest diamond I thought Michelle could pay off after we got married. <laughs> she was an ultrasound tech at Mary, the old Marion Memorial Hospital. So I picked it out. And I remember I took her to Ren Lake, with, Ren Lake which is the site of our first date. I got down on my knee, and to this day, uh, I don't ever remember her saying yes. I do remember her taking the ring, but I don't ever remember her saying yes. We still argue about this. But we have four children. We live in the house together. I, I, we had a wedding, so I think she's good. Um, and over the years, I've had a better job, and I've made more money, and I, I, I look at a ring, and I'm just like, wow, that's, that's small. I mean, that's small. And I've wanted to buy her bigger rings. And so I've asked her several times, can I, can I buy you a bigger diamond? One day, she got frustrated with me, which happens more often than I'd like to admit, and she finally just looked at me, and she said, I don't want another ring. Another ring won't mean what this one means. You picked this out for me. You gave it to me. And you promised me your life. To anyone else, this coin may not even register. But to this woman, this coin meant everything. Because of what it stood for in her life because of when she received it, and because of who she received it from. So while other people in her society could dismiss this coin and simply walk away and say, just throw another one in its place, for this woman, she simply could not do that. Which is why we see her stop her life and turn her house upside down until she finds it. She can't get away from finding this coin. It was a special coin. As a matter of fact, let me just submit to you. I think there are people in our society, in our culture, that some people dismiss. Some people discard. I would even argue this morning there are churches who dismiss people because they don't meet their standard. God help us that we don't have that kind of heart. God help us that we don't have a heart like the Pharisees and the scribes. Help us to have the eyes and the heart and the hands of Christ Jesus who has saved us and redeemed us from ourselves and our sin and loved lost people like He does. God help us not to discard and dismiss those who live all around us. 
The coin was very precious. Number two, I want you to see the call to her party was very particular. Look in verse 9. The Bible says, and when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Now, the invitation is a very selective one. She did not invite everybody to her party. The Bible says she invited her friends and her neighbors. However, she did not invite all of her friends and neighbors. She only invited her female friends to her party. Now, that's interesting. So, Tim, how do you know that? Well, because in the Greek language... Those two words are in the feminine. So I know that she did not invite any men to her party. And I just have to ask the question, why in the world would she not invite men to her party? It's not because she didn't like men. That's not the point. But think about it. Why in the world would she only have invited women to her party? I think here's the answer. I think she only calls those to her party who would have understood the depth of her sorrow as well as the fullness of her joy. Let me say that one more time. I think she only invites those people to her party who would have understood the depth of her sorrow and the fullness of her joy. That's the reason she didn't invite men. Imagine this. She searches all day long. She looks in every nook, every cranny of her house. She finally finds her coin. She runs out of her house across the street. And there's a a guy there by the name of Hank. It's a very common first century Jewish name. I'd have to explain it. She says, Hank, you are not going to believe it. I lost my coin and I found it. Here's Hank's reaction. Okay. Now imagine she looks all day long. Every nook and cranny of her house. Takes her all day. She works hard. She finds a coin. And with her excitement and exuberance, she runs out of her house across the street and she finds a woman named Norma. It's also a very common first century Jewish name. She says, Norma, you're not going to believe this. I found my coin. I will not act out how Norma responds, but suffice it to say, she's excited too. Because she gets it. She understands. Last church I pastored, God did amazing stuff in spite of who their pastor was. And uh, we, we, we worshipped, we called it our sanctanasium. That's what we called it. It was, it was a gym because we had outgrown our, our, worship, our chapel. We called it our chapel. And so I, we were in between worship services and we had two double doors there and double doors there and there and there. And in between services, I was with a group of guys up here at the front. And this guy walked in the back of the church and he had cut off blue jean shorts and flip flops and he had cut the sleeves off his t-shirt. Okay, most of our deacons don't dress like that, alright? So I noticed him. I noticed a few other things too. He had sleeves. You know what I'm talking about by sleeves? He had ink. They had put under his skin tattoos. Are you Baptist or whatever? Just look at me. There are tattoos. I'm joking. So anyhow, he walks in, but that's not it. He also had tattoos that came up out of his shirt like it was taken over his neck. But that didn't really catch my eye. Nor did the lug nuts in his ears, but the blue ring in his nose. Now that caught my attention. We don't have a deacon that looks like you. Well, the process of a few weeks, this guy gets radically saved. I I wondered why in the world he was even in our church. You know, because we we don't do bull rings in our church. We don't do that. Why, Why are you here? Well, the reason he was there was because he had tried just about everything else in his life and he was empty and dead and dry inside. And he found the light of the gospel and a church that loved him. I'll never forget... But Sunday, I put my arm around him like this, and I said, I want you guys to meet my new brother in Christ. And the looks on the, the faces of our church, I mean, the big-time eyes. 
And I remember the day I baptized him. He said, should I take my bull ring out? And you all don't know me yet. But I said, no, leave it in. They need it. So I think, I, I think I'm the only pastor in the history of that church that ever baptized anybody with a bull ring. I don't know if that's good or bad. It's probably bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. We were getting ready for Easter, and uh, we, had, we, have seven par- we had seven parking lots at our church. And uh, so we had parking lot greeter ministry, and, and we were getting ready for a, We had never had a thousand in worship, but we were getting ready for a thousand on that Easter Sunday. And I went to him, and I said, hey, I was wanting to know if you'd be a parking lot greeter for us. And he looked at me, and he goes, you want this face to be the first one they see. Yeah, I do. Now, listen, we put him in the back parking lot. We didn't put him up front, all right? The back parking lot. I said, yeah, man, actually I do. And he said, really? He looked at me with this confused look on his face. I said, yeah. I said, my thinking is, if they see you and they know we took you, there's a good chance we're going to take them too. <laughs> I love that guy. He taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about how you judge people. You see what they look like on the outside? He used to come early and put his Bible on the front row. He didn't know that in Baptist churches you don't have to come early to save a seat on the front row. (laughs) He had never been a part of church. It was so refreshing to have him there, you know. So he'd come early, and man, I'd preach, and we'd give the invitation. A lot of people were getting saved. We had like 85 people baptized that year, and so, I mean, he was... He was fresh and new and fired up about what God had taken him from hell and given him an address in heaven. You get that? So when he got excited, I mean, this guy, most of us, we've just gotten over it. Hello? We've gotten over what we got, sadly. And he'd come and he'd set his Bible down and I'd see him huge tears during the invitation. Sometimes he'd jump up and down and shout because he didn't know. He hadn't read Leviticus in the way Baptist. We don't do that. It says that in Leviticus. This little girl came forward. She was professing her face and he scared me half to death. He jumped up and down. He was weeping and shouting. And I thought, man, God, I don't want to get to where I'm over what you've done for me. Now, if I can just be real honest and real brutal, my wife and I have been married a long time. 13 or so, 14, I don't know, I forget. It's, It's a long time. And those of you who are married, you get this. When you were dating, you got butterflies in your stomach hoping to be near that one you loved. But eventually, when you see them brush their teeth enough, you get over them. Hello? <laughs> May God forgive us. One, for ever getting over the woman or the man that he's given us. But how much worse that some of us get over what Jesus has done for us. I think the reason some of us don't tell people about Jesus is because we've gotten over him. She only called us to a party who would have understood the depth of her sorrow as well as the fullness of her joy. I, I contend this morning that we sit here and we're just simply unimpressed with Jesus. We come in, we do the rote stuff, we sing the right number of songs, we have the offertory and the prayer and the announcements, and then we go home and we go back to normalcy. And what God is begging of us is that we remember what Christ has done. 
And that we are so overjoyed by what God has done in our hearts that we can't wait to get somewhere this afternoon to tell them what Christ has done. I don't don't know if you know me, but you don't know where I came from. And even as a Baptist preacher's son, Christ found me in a very dark place and brought me out of the pit and saved me and set me free. And I will never get over what he's done. Thirdly, I want you to see the Creator's provocation. Look at verse 10 real quickly. I'm going to try to get done. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me just translate this as literally as I know how. Likewise, I say to you, joy arises. The sense is that joy is bubbling up in the heart of this person so much so that it is affecting the countenance and it is recognizable to those who are sitting in the room. So likewise, I say to you, watch it there in verse 10, joy arises, literally translated, before the faces of the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. So the question is, who is the one that's celebrating over one coming back to the Father? And the answer is God Himself. Likewise, I say to you, joy arises before the faces of the angels of God. There are angels that stand around God's throne 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, throughout all of eternity. And they sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And according to the record that Jesus gives us here, the angels of God take notice of the joy on the face of the Father. This is what happens when a lost person comes to God. And I contend this morning, we need to understand the fullness of God's joy when his family is intact and the depth of God's sorrow when his family is fragmented. The Creator is provoked to joy, but what does it? A sinner repenting. What does it mean to repent? Well, it doesn't mean to confess. Confession and repentance are different. Confession means you are agreeing with God that what you've done wrong is wrong. Repentance is you turning around. It's the Hebrew idea of shuv. You're headed in a direction and you turn around and you walk in a new direction. That's, that's biblical repentance. We've got people all over America that have confessed their sin and confessed their sin. They cry to cry and then they get up here. They never repent. They never turn from themselves or their sin or their shame or their, or their shackles. And they simply, they, God, I agree with you. And then they feel better for a while, but nothing ever changes. It's because they never repented. Confession is biblical and confession is good, but confession is not repentance. And repentance brings joy to the heart of God. Believer, you and I need to repent. Sinner, you need to repent and come to God and come to faith. Fourthly and lastly, not only was the coin very precious, not only was the call to a party very particular, and not only did the Creator's heart experience incredible joy, but I want you to lastly see the catalyst of her passion. Uh, I told you I have four children. Um, my oldest daughter turned nine yesterday. We had a big party uh, yesterday. It's really hard when your oldest child is born January the 2nd and your next child is born January the 5th. You just, it's just too much cake in too short a time. And uh, my oldest daughter, you know... You know um, I had visions and dreams of what my son and I would do together. Kill stuff. Work on cars. Manly stuff. You know what my son likes? Video games. That's it. Video games. I took him to Tractor Pools growing up. You know what he'd do? 
he'd take a video game and play a video game at a tractor pull. I'm telling you, it says in Deuteronomy not to do that, all right? And don't go read it. Don't check my fact on that. I'm just telling you. But my red-headed daughter, my oldest daughter, guess what she loves? She loves stock car racing and tractor pulling. And she likes getting her nails done. She's a weird little girl. And uh, from the time she's a little bitty, I'd take her to, she wanted to go see tractor pulls. So we'd go, and she wants to get a pit pass. Because <laughs> she wants autographs from the drivers. Now, the funny thing about that is, you know anything about tractor pulling, the drivers are farmers. And they think this little red-headed girl is a hoot. Can I say hoot in your pulpit? Okay. And they think she's a hoot. And so she goes down there, and she's, at, she's getting autographs, and she, they let her sit on the tractor, and she, she just thinks this is amazing. I, I, I grew up going to tractor pulls, and uh, let me tell you how good of a parent I am. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just, just bragging about how good of a parent I am. Uh, we were at the, we live in Springfield now, and so we have the Illinois State Fair every year, and they have three nights of tractor pulling. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and my four-year-old daughter, we were there this year. We were, we were there. I, I'm there. You cannot make this up. She turned around to me and she could say, Daddy, that tractor didn't win because it wasn't green. Amen. That's, that's good parenting right there. Amen. And I, Allie, my oldest daughter, she and I go down there and she's getting autographs. And I'm, I, I'm asking questions. What fuel? What, how many cubic inches? I'm asking those kind of questions. Turbo. I'm asking questions. I want to know. Because if you know anything about this at all or any other kind of motorsports, you'll know that the results they get out there on a track is different than we got with the John Deere back home. It's different. They cut the tire. I mean, they do all kinds of stuff. So I'm asking questions about, okay, you're getting extraordinary results. I want to know what's inside. Now hang with me. I promise I'm driving this train somewhere. When I read these three short verses, this is what I think. I want to know what's fueling this woman. I want to know what is the catalyst of her passion. Because if I can figure that out, I mean, this woman stops everything and she, she goes to great lengths to find this little coin. I want to get that in me for lost people. I, I want my family to have that kind of heartbeat for lost people. Where we are tirelessly pursuing that which is lost. Here's the deal. The coin is never going to come to itself and go, I'm lost. I've got to get back into the strand. The coin will never say that. It doesn't have the ability. And by the way, there are lost people that live all around us. And they do not have the ability to say, you know what, I'm lost. I've got, I've got to find God. What is it that's fueling this woman? I think, I think here it is, and I'm done. I think because of the value she saw in the coin. Just If you just hit pause right there and think about that. I think because of the value she saw in the coin, she became passionate about finding it. The question really is, do we value lost people? 
Do we value our children and our grandchildren? Do we value our neighbors and our co-workers? Do we value the people we go to school with? A small coin would have been difficult, if not impossible, to find in these circumstances. It would have taken a great amount of time, effort, and focus for her to find her coin. This is what I've learned. You should never underestimate the passion of someone looking for something that has immeasurable value to them. I'll say that one more time. Never underestimate the passion of somebody looking for something that has immeasurable value to them. I don't know about you, but I've come to the place in my life where I've started to ask God, God help me to see my neighbors the way you've seen them. God, don't, 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 don't let me look at them as they have money. They don't have money. They, they're mean to their wife. Don't, don't, don't let me look at people through fleshly eyes. But God, let me see my neighbors through the bloody lenses of Calvary. That you love them enough to send your son to die in their place on the cross. And they're either lost or they're saved. Help me, God, to see people like you see people. The Bible says here that she lit a lamp. speaks to the duration of her search. Then the Bible says she swept her house. It speaks, I think, to the thoroughness of her search. She was not willing to stop. Oh, that we might have churches that were relentlessly pursuing the lost people in their communities. Here's the question. How precious to you are your lost friends, family, and neighbors? About a year ago, we we started something called Choose Two. And um, I'm praying for Mark and for Kyle. Kyle's a young man, lives right beside of us. His wife came back from a business trip last year and uh, packed her things and said, I've taken a job in another state and I'm gone. They had been married only a couple of years. I'm praying twice a day for a man named Kyle, seeking to engage him in a relationship for the sake of the gospel. How precious to you are your lost friends, neighbors, and family. I pick on Elijah, my oldest son, quite a bit. I love him dearly. Uh, he, uh, he, sadly, he is a lot like his grandpa Paul. And uh, that's good and bad. I mean, it has both. He's a weird little kid, though. He thinks taking gospel tracts to school and sharing them is normal. Just like his grandpa Paul. <laughs> we do something every night as a family. Um, by the way, um, he's led several of his friends to Christ at school. That's an interesting conversation with a parent when they call. What does your son do to my daughter? Hold still. He's 11 now. He turned 11 on the 2nd of January. We do this thing every night. We gather at 8 o'clock, especially when daddy's at home. Uh, when, when I'm on the road, we do it over the phone. But we gather in the living room as a family, and at 8 o'clock every night, that's our family prayer time. And uh, we pray together as a family, and then I have the incredible privilege of tucking my three older children into bed. And sometimes it's fun. Sometimes I've got like an eight-year-old here and a ten-year-old here and the three-year-old or four-year-old dragging on my leg and going down the hall. And, and I tuck them in differently, you know. Uh, Maya, she's, she's 
what we call the tornado. And uh, I said, Maya, Daddy loves you. Good night. And then Allison, my oldest, Allie, well, I call her Red. Red, Daddy loves you. She's got red hair. Red, I love you. Good night. And then I tell my son good night. Elijah, I love you. Shut your eyes and shut your mouth and go to sleep. <laughs> because he's a little boy that wakes up about 5.30, 6 o'clock every morning, and he's on go. He used to walk in and go, Dad, are you awake? <laughs> oh, I am now. <laughs> so, so now he's old enough. Just go turn the TV on. You're fine. There's cereal. You're good, okay? You don't choke on the Cheerios. And... So he just on go. And so I know that I know my son, he's go, go, go all day long. And so I, I, I've always said to him, good night, son, I love you. Shut your eyes and shut your mouth and go to sleep. Because I know Elijah, if, if he'll shut his eyes and shut his mouth for two minutes, he's comatose. And one night I tucked him into bed and uh, same thing. And I went into my bedroom and shut the door. And Mama was in the living room rocking the baby. An hour later, an hour later, the door opened, and I thought, finally, Mama's coming to bed. But it wasn't her. It was Elijah. You've got to be kidding me. And the door opened, and he walked in, and he was trembling, he was shaking, and tears were running down his eyes. So I sat up on the edge of my bed, and I said, Elijah, come here, and I grabbed him on his shoulders and I pulled him close to me and I said, Elijah, what's wrong? And this is the question he had for me. Daddy, could Jesus come back tonight? And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, amillennial, premillennial, post pre-tribulational, do we have this conversation? And I thought, now's not the moment for a theological discussion because my son's afraid and I don't know why. And so I just asked him a couple questions. I said, Elijah, are you a believer? Yes. I said, then if Jesus comes tonight and he can, by the way, church, he can. If Jesus comes tonight, you're a believer, you're going to go be with Jesus and it's going to be fine, Elijah. I said, Elijah, is Daddy a believer? Yes. That if Jesus comes tonight, Daddy's going to go be with Jesus and it's going to be fine. We're going to go to heaven. It's going to be great. I said, Elijah, is Mommy a believer? Yeah, Daddy. I said, and if Jesus comes tonight, Daddy's going to go be with Jesus and Mommy's going to go be with Jesus and you're going to go be with Jesus and we're going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. And then he said this. He said, that's what's going to happen to Allie. I don't know. I don't know. I said, what do you want to do? He said, Daddy, I want to go wake her up and tell her again. The reason he said again was because a week earlier they were on the trampoline. I was barbecuing on our back deck and he gave one of the most beautiful, simple gospel presentations to his little sister. Allie, you're a sinner. Christ died because you can't pay for your sins. And you need to put your faith and trust in what he did for you on the cross so that you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven when you die. 
do you want to do that right now? And she said, no. Daddy, I want to wake her up and tell her again. Okay. So stood up. We walked right across the hall to Allie's bedroom. And he started shaking his sister. He said, Allie, wake up. I want to talk to you. He started sharing with her again there sitting in her bed. And the Spirit of God gripped my heart. And he asked me two questions. And I'll pose them to you today. And, and this is the final Conclusion, I, I reserve the right to close the sermon seven times. So when I say in closing, you all just know, okay? This is what the Spirit of God asked me that night. Tim, when is the last time that you lost sleep over someone who was lost? We don't do that. We don't care enough that we can't sleep. Let's be honest today. Second question. Tim, when's the last time you loved somebody enough that you wept because if they die or Christ returns, they'll spend eternity in hell. And I pose that question to you. When's the last time you lost sleep? When's the last time you cared enough about somebody's soul that you wept because if they die or Christ returns? They're going to be lost for eternity. If the Bible's true, and I believe it is, hell lasts forever. And you and I have friends and family that are going to go there. God doesn't save them. And I can't sugarcoat that. I can't make that pretty. It's the truth. The problem is that we don't want to deal with the truth. We want to forget the truth or dismiss the truth because the truth will change how we live. It will change how you pray. It changes how you do church. It changes how you do your whole day because if the Bible's true, and it is, and hell's forever, we must care about lost people. Amen. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, I confess my apathy today anew and afresh. And God, like this woman, I want so bad to relentlessly pursue those that are lost. God, help me not to have the heart of a Pharisee, judgmental, complaining. God, help me have the heart of your son. who love lost people even though they were lost. God, I pray today that for the believers in this room, that God, you would radically break our heart today. I pray, Father, that you would change us today. That you change everything about how... God, we can't do five-minute devotions in the morning with the neighbors lost. God, we can't, we can't just keep on doing what we've always done when we have children and grandchildren that are going to split hell wide open. So, Father, today, sweep over us, Spirit of God. Break us. Convict us for our laziness and our apathy toward those who are lost. 
God, I pray today that you'd make me uncomfortable again. Pray, God, I'd never be satisfied. So, Father, today I pray in this place that you help us. That, God, you reveal to us that neighbor, that coworker, that friend who needs you. And maybe today's the day, the first day where we call their name before you in prayer and ask you, God, to save them. And God, I pray for those who are here today that they do not know you as a personal Savior. And if they were to die or you should return, that God, they would not get into your heaven. I pray for them today that today they would be saved, be rescued by your grace through faith. God, do your work today.